We carry on this evening then in our study through the Gospel of John. We're, we're almost there. There's only four chapters left now. We've been looking over the last um, uh, few sessions we've had at the Upper Room Discourse. This is this um, passage in Scripture in the Gospel of John that goes from uh, chapters 13 through to chapter 17. Uh, it's the longest discourse we find recorded in the New Testament. It's the longest speech, if you like, Jesus gives to his disciples. It begins in the upper room and ends en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, that's kind of where we got to the end of last time. It's really, we've said last time, it's an intensive training for the disciples. This is a real um, masterclass, if you like. And we saw that there were prerequisites that Jesus laid down before he got into the actual real teaching. One of those was this, this... prerequisite to give up the right to yourself that's a, a phrase i've borrowed from uh, oswald chambers but simply you know we, we are to let go of any right that we may perceive we have to our own lives uh, and give it over to god and if you are to be a disciple then that is something we are to do servanthood also is a prerequisite and we saw that played out in this incredible situation we have where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, where Jesus lays aside his garments, he humbles himself, becomes as a servant, and as we commented, that really just gives us the whole of the gospel in that one simple little act that Jesus does. And then Jesus goes on to really start the training, if you like, and he starts a new commandment. Now, under the law, under the Mosaic law, they were told that they should uh, effectively be loving. And there's all these kind of things, you know, clearly uh, the, the last portion of the Ten Commandments deal with uh, our attitudes to our, our fellow men. But Jesus is saying this is something different. This is a new commandment. Uh, this is to love one another, as Jesus says, as I have loved you. Now, he loved with an unconditional love, this uh, agape or agape love, whatever you prefer. That, that doesn't have limits. It's not based upon what we can get back from it. It's just this unconditional giving over. And that's the love that we should have for our, our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Jesus then goes on to say that we should keep his commandments. Now that's really the only commandment that we're actually specifically given. So you kind of get the impression that that is really important. It's funny actually, I was having a conversation recently with somebody who was telling me that in their, their line of business they work for a supposedly Christian organisation and they're thinking of leaving because some of the Christians are so unkind and so fighting for themselves all the time and putting their own interests above anything else and that's supposedly a Christian organisation. You know, we're supposed to show the world the love that God has for us by the love we have for each other. In um, John's first letter, he talks about the fact that if we don't love our brothers who we can see, how can we say that we love God who we can't see? It's a very simple test, if you like, that's been given to us, but we should uh, love each other. And Jesus says, keep my commandments. And we also saw, uh, particularly in John 15, that we've been appointed to bear fruit. It's not something that's uh, an optional thing. That's why we've been called. We've been a called, we've been appointed, ordained by Jesus to bear fruit. And that fruit we're told in John 15 is fruit that should remain. And we're also told that we should continually abide in Christ. Again, I don't think that's something that we actually have a choice about if we are a disciple. You don't choose, yeah, actually yeah, this week I might abide in Christ. You know, we can choose the intensity of that abiding. There are times that we will and maybe put our feet in the world, and we can lessen our fruitfulness as a result. 
But one of the things we looked at was the fact that Christians will produce fruit. It's what we've been called to do. We will naturally produce fruit. Any person that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit will produce fruit. And, and I think this whole idea of abiding in Christ. You know, there may be believers that get involved in things that they shouldn't get involved in. But there comes a point where you bring it down to the lowest denominator and there's still a marked difference between them and the people in the world. I was talking to somebody this morning who was saying that in their own life for a long time they were questioning were they saved or not and then they started realizing that actually they changed so much from the way they were and they realized although they weren't at that time they didn't feel they were really growing in the lord they realized this huge gulf that separated them from the people in the world abiding in christ is something that as believers we will naturally do but i do believe we also get a choice as to the intensity of that relationship just it is a relationship in any relationship you can choose how intense that relationship becomes but the more you love somebody the more intense you want that relationship to be but as a result of that abiding in christ persecution will come it's not a a, it might happen to us we're told it will come if we abide in christ the world is not going to like that because we're going to be challenging the standards of the world but we find that jesus will send this is what he told us another comforter and we saw that in john 14 Again, the Greek word alos, it's another of the same kind. Uh, This isn't some kind of different type of thing that's coming. This is another of the same kind of Jesus, the same kind of comforter that Jesus himself was. And we're told that this will be the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. We're told again that the world will not know him. The world can't understand the things of the spirit. They are spiritually discerned. The world doesn't understand them. Paul tells us that in Corinthians. But we're told that he will indwell the believer. And that's an awesome privilege. We mentioned that briefly remember a previous study, that in the Old Testament, believers didn't have the privilege, people that had faith and trust in God, didn't have that privilege of the Holy Spirit indwelling them on a permanent basis. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us forever. You know, David, after his indiscretion with Bathsheba, cries, and we read in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I mean, if we would run the risk of every time we sinned, losing the Holy Spirit, how different would we approach the things that we so casually get involved in that maybe we know that we shouldn't? The Holy Spirit, we're told, will testify of Jesus. How so? Well, we looked last time as well that it's by the fruit that's produced in the lives of believers. That's how the Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus, by working through us. And this fruit, this, the, the fruit of the Spirit that we read about, will be produced in our lives. And that then goes on to the greater works that Jesus said we would accomplish as a result of this, this, this relationship that we have with him. His greater works testifying to the deity of Christ. And if we don't do that, the world is never going to see. That's a, such an important foundation for our mission as believers, to let the world see that Jesus Christ is God. If he's not God, then he's not the saviour. Okay, so that's the background. I'm just giving you a little bit of that background so that as we go into chapter 18, we read there when Jesus has spoken these words. So they're the words that we've been talking about. That's what we've covered. That's what Jesus had gone through with the disciples. It's quite a a heavy teaching session. I do apologize. The last session was extremely heavy. Uh, Even I was worn out when I got to the end of it. Um, But there is so much there. There's so much depth. And, you know, in all honesty, even all that we went through last time, we didn't even scratch the surface. Uh, there's so much there and I'd encourage you to go back over those chapters and dig into it even more but we read then chapter 18 verse 1 when Jesus had spoken these words he went forth with his disciples over the book Kidron um, that's uh, the place uh, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples now uh, this place Kidron 
The name means the black waters. It's interesting that um, a lot of the Bible commentators feel that John is alluding here to an event that took place. Because why bother mentioning that they happened to go over the Greek uh, Kidron? What, what relevance was that? Well, the name itself, because Jesus himself is passing over, if you like, these black waters. He's going through this very dark time in his life, but he's got to make this, this journey. In 2 Samuel 15, 23, David was fleeing from Absalom after he'd been betrayed, if you like. Same kind of situation. And we're told there that David also flees and goes over this book, uh, Kidron. So there's a very similar kind of picture there. And the commentators feel that John's kind of alluding to that in this as well. It's interesting to note what John doesn't record as we look at this whole situation with, as we know, the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't even mention Gethsemane by name, and he doesn't record Jesus' agony in the garden. I just wonder, is that partly because as Jesus was suffering in the garden, John and Peter and the others were sleeping? Is it something that even however many years later, 50, 60, 70 years later, as John is writing this, recalling these events, it was still too painful that while his Lord suffered, he slept? don't know it's conjecture but john doesn't mention the details of that suffering that is the um a picture um of the of jerusalem as it appeared during solomon's time uh, and you can see here on, here on the east side this was the valley the kidron valley now later on it became the place and this is another reason why possibly that has the name the black waters that as they were offering temple sacrifices and everything else, the blood would flow off into this valley uh, and they would literally just wash it off. During uh, the, the time of the Roman occupation, Jesus' time, they actually built uh, a viaduct apparently to bring in fresh water to literally kind of swill all the blood away. There was so much that was, uh, was uh, being sacrificed that they had to do something from a hygiene point of view. So this Kidron Valley was really a, a nasty kind of place, almost a rubbish tip as it were, as uh, all this debris was swept away into it. That's just looking from the area of Gethsemane across. And you see quite how close we are. That's the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, clearly it's only just a stone's throw from the, uh, from the Temple Mount. Looking at it from the air, you can see the Temple Mount is there. And uh, this is the area. There's conjecture over to exactly where the Garden of Gethsemane was. But there's a few places that are today being marked, typically in this area, as the garden. And there's a place you can go and visit today. And uh, interestingly, there is a tree there that is extremely old that dates back to that time. People suggest that this is actually the site. But certainly it would have been in this area. And um, that's obviously how how it appears today. And then, just looking down, this is actually the southern end of the Kidron Valley today. You can see all these incredible masses of dwellings that are there. Uh, but obviously the valley passes through down here, and it obviously bends on around there. So uh, that's the, the place we're looking at. In Luke 22, I just include this, although John doesn't mention it, I think it's important for our background. Luke talks there, Dr. Luke. He says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony... He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's difficult for us to imagine the intense anguish that Jesus was under at this time. Great drops of blood, says Dr. Luke. Now, Dr. Luke should know what he's talking about. He was a physician. Um, But this condition is a medical condition it's uh, hermatidrosis uh, and under extreme anguish and mental pressure you can actually sweat blood but i don't believe that jesus was in this anguish because of the thought of the cross 
Whilst that was something he knew he had to endure, I don't believe that's what was causing the anguish, but because he knew on our behalf he was going to drink of the cup of God's wrath. When you look in particularly books of the book of Revelation, you find there this, this cup of God's wrath mentioned frequently, and it's horrible. You start to realize quite how much God hates sin and how much a price has to be paid. Now, you either are going to stand before God and try and pay for it yourself, which you can never do because it's effectively an infinite price that's uh, on this, this uh, rebellion we've committed against God, or you have Jesus stand in your place. But Jesus is in this position knowing, not that he's facing crucifixion, that would have been terrifying enough, but it's because on the cross, we read in Isaiah 53, that God poured upon him that wrath that was due to us. Three times Jesus actually prays, if there's any other way. you know. Now the fact that there is no other way, that Jesus has to go through this, makes it very clear that the only way, and we may not understand, it may not quite make sense to us why Jesus had to go through this and everything else, but regardless of what we do or don't understand, clearly there was no other way that we could be purchased and redeemed but by Jesus going through this. I think one of the things that Jesus was most fearful about was this whole idea of being separated from his father. We've talked already in the study of John, this, this love that existed in the Godhead. But Jesus was in his position knowing, uh, well, I think we read in Psalm 66 verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Well, Jesus, we're told, became sin for us. So the Lord at that point, the father had to turn away from the son. And I think that's what the son was fearing most. And we read Matthew twenty-seven forty-six: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time Jesus calls God, God. He always refers to him as father. But on this occasion, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's been this separation. And it's because of you and I. It's so that we don't have to be in that position. You see... People often talk about hell and they jokingly talk about, you know, oh, I'm quite happy to go to hell because all my friends will be there. They have no concept of what hell is. And even the, the, the pictures we see of this kind of lake of fire and, you know, that kind of idea, and obviously that's, that's a biblical idea uh, from Revelation. But I think it's sometimes we, we get so used to the imagery that we forget the intensity of what this is all about. Hell is eternal separation from God. And we struggle to understand what that's like because we're not in that position. We're told, Psalm 139, that even in Hades, God's presence can be felt. David's saying that, you know, where can I flee from your presence? You know, if I make my bed in the depths of hell, even there. You see, the people that are currently in Hades, this holding place, for want of a better expression, for people that are unbelievers until the final judgment, even there, God's presence can be felt. The only person, I believe, so far, that has yet experienced what hell will be like, and when I use that phrase, I'm referring to the lake of fire that's eternal, is Jesus. He's the only person that has experienced that. And you see the anguish he went through. That should be enough for, for us to motivate us to talk to people, to warn them. There's two gardens specifically mentioned in scripture. Eden being one, Gethsemane being another. In Eden all was wonderful, in Gethsemane all was terrible. In Eden man sought Satan... In Gethsemane, the Son of Man sought God. In Eden, Adam chose to sin. In Gethsemane, the Saviour chose to suffer. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered and soldiers fell before him. In Eden, Adam took of the fruit. In Gethsemane, Jesus took of the cup. 
In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Jesus boldly revealed himself as the I Am. In Eden, God saw Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. And we could go on and see many other parallels between those two gardens. Verse 2 says, And Judas also, which betrayed him and knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, coming thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, let's just have a quick look at this. When Jesus doesn't play hide-and-seek, he goes to a place where Judas knew that he would be. You see, if Jesus wanted to escape this, he could have gone anywhere and hid. But he goes to a place where Judas knew he often went. This was a very likely spot for Judas to come back and find that Jesus was. Jesus wasn't running away. And this is exactly what John 10.18 said when we were looking at that. Jesus said there that no one takes my life. Jesus wasn't afraid. He wasn't caught by surprise. He knew what was going to happen and he went willingly. He went through this for us. The band of men, um, well, that typically could be for anywhere between 400 and 600 men, uh, plus the, the officers of the, uh, the temple. There were 600, apparently, Romans stationed at the Antonia Fortress. And obviously, so it's those, it would appear to be those 600 that went there, plus the officers. We actually find uh, in verse 12 uh, of chapter 18 in a minute, uh, the name that's actually in the Greek there uh, is uh, Chiliarchos, uh, and he's believed to be the leader of the Roman garrison that was there at the time. So it looks like they actually took the whole garrison out to go and arrest Jesus. Now, what about you, but why so many? Isn't that a bit overkill? Well, we'll answer that question in a minute, because there's a very interesting reason for that. Let's just carry on. Verse 4 says, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? I just think it's quite, you know, these people have arrived and Jesus goes and says, Who are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto them, I am. Doesn't the he we have in our Bibles is inserted by the commentators. Jesus said, I am. And Judas also which betrayed him, stood with them. Jesus is claiming to be the voice of the burning bush. It's no mistake. He's, he's saying, I am. That's the name of God. That's the name that God reveals to Moses. When Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? God says to him, I am. And here they say to Jesus, or Jesus says unto them when they say, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. As soon then as he said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Imagine this. How many, it was 600 or so armed soldiers, plus the temple guards, plus any body that, you know, oh, this is very interesting, let's follow along and see. Hundreds of people falling over. You imagine lanterns and torches and swords and things going everywhere. This has been a real commotion. Is it slain in the spirit? No, I don't think so. It's interesting, actually, if you look, that they went backward, which is what we often see on these supposedly spirit-led um, campaigns and crusades that these people do. Uh, you'll find in Scripture, those that are worshipping fall forward. This is an interesting observation. Then he asked them again, Whom seek ye? At this point, I'm guessing nobody really wants to say. <laughs> so very well, uh, we're, um, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, hoping that it's not going to happen again. And I mean, just, just imagine this. There could have been you know, five minutes while they all got themselves back up and got themselves sorted out here. But Jesus then says, 
Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am. Okay, I'm he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be filled of which he spoke. Of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. See here we find that the shepherd is caring for his sheep. Straight away, he's concerned. He's not for himself. He knows what he's doing and where he's going. But he's concerned about his disciples and he's taking care for those sheep. And it's very interesting because what John records here is that he says that the saying might be fulfilled of which he spoke. Well, typically we'd expect that to come from the Old Testament referring to Scripture. But John here refers just back to chapter 17. What John is doing is classing his own record as Scripture. which is very interesting. Clearly John understood the importance of that which he's recording for us. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath, the cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is very interesting as well. Peter, bear in mind, has just seen 600 or so people fall over. You can imagine him thinking back to the times of Elijah or Elisha. You know, when, when fires call down from heaven and, and God's enemies are destroyed. And, or, or when 185,000 Assyrians are killed in one night by an angel of the Lord. And Peter's standing there and this is an incredible event. Jesus just says, I am. And they all go down. And Peter's thinking, this is going to be easy. So he starts picking off one by one. The short sword, which is what it was, was typically used for splitting helmets. Now, Peter gets the ear, but I don't think that's what Peter was aiming for. Uh, I think Peter was aiming for the helmet, for the head. Interestingly enough, and I think there's a very important reason for this, Peter ends up just getting Malchus's ear. Now, what we see here, as I say, bolstered by this falling over, thinking, you know, well, we'll have a go at them, he seeks to help Jesus. You know, when we try and help God... It always creates problems. You see, really, this was kind of a, on Peter's part, partly a lack of faith as well. Did he really trust Jesus? He didn't really fully understand the circumstances, but thinks, I've got to do something. Abraham, similar situation with Hagar producing Ishmael, caused all sorts of problems. In fact, it really causes the, the loss of peace in Abraham's family. Abraham trying to help God out. You know, Lord, how are you going to fulfill this? You said this is going to happen, but, uh, you know, we've got to find a way of resolving this problem for you. God doesn't need our help. Saul sacrificed King Saul, sacrificed in lieu of Samuel. Samuel was late getting to uh, one of the battles. Um, Saul's getting a little bit edgy. The, the troops are, you know, not particularly happy. They're, they're concerned. Uh, so Saul says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do the sacrifice. Well, he wasn't a Levite. He wasn't appointed to do that. He was breaking the law. And as a result of it, Saul loses the kingdom. Trying to help God. You know, we've got to do something here. Josiah. Uh, we read about in uh, the end of Second Chronicles, chapter 34, I believe. And he tries to reclaim the ark from, king, uh, from Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh says to him, look, why are you trying to fight against me? I've got no problem with you. Necho was after the Assyrians at the time, not after Josiah. But Josiah goes out to battle with him. King Pharaoh Necho is going out after Josiah's enemies and Josiah goes out and starts his fight with him and Pharaoh Necho says look the Lord is with me don't fight against me Josiah does trying to help God out we've got a little problem here you know you know something's got to be done and Josiah ends up losing his life as a result of this every time we try and help God every time well, we've got to do something we end up with problems it's a very important lesson for us 
You see, and we find in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please him. Do we trust God? Do we really trust him? Coming back to this this issue as to why were there so many soldiers and why does Peter so recklessly charge in, we need to understand a little bit of the background of the mindset at that time. Now, the Jewish expectation was for a Messiah to come to redeem their people, to set them free from the yoke of bondage, from the slavery, from the tyranny of Rome. In Luke chapter 1, we have recorded there. Um, this is the, the prayer of uh, Zacharias. I think it's his voice back again. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Okay? The God of Israel, referring to, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Okay? So, by the way, redeemed his people, referring to the Jews. That's what they understood this to be. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, that we should be, the Jews, should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. The Jews had this understanding that when the Messiah came, he would deliver them from their enemies. And we understand, with the benefit of hindsight, that is still yet to happen. But at this time, they didn't understand. Back in Luke chapter 1, a few verses earlier, Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel speaking to Mary, he says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That was a national Jewish throne. So we see here that the expectation was for somebody to come onto the scene to be a political ruler, to set them free, and to sit on the throne of David. So you start to see partly why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders were so concerned. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we find that even after the resurrection, the disciples were still a little bit confused about the whole issue of timing. They, they understood that Messiah was to set Israel free, but when and how? You see, there they say, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, Jesus, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's very interesting. Jesus doesn't say, no, guys, you've got it all wrong. The church is the new Israel. No, no. He says, it's not at this time. Okay? And he said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his own power. You see, the disciples were expecting even then. Right now we've gone through this, you know, okay, got past the resurrection. Now are you going to do it? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. You see, the disciples were expecting a national deliverer. This is why Peter goes in so gung-ho. You know, just, he's expecting this to be the moment when they're going to take power back. But the Jews were fearing a political insurrection against Rome. This is why they've gone to the, the Roman authorities and said, look, we need help. We've got somebody that's, that's, that's going to cause a real problem and raise this, this, this huge um, insurrection against Rome, you've got to stop it. And that's the basis they had for getting so many soldiers to come out. You see, the Jewish leaders wanted to maintain the status quo. You see, they, they wanted to be free, but they'd rather settle for the limited freedom they had under Rome than run the risk of this character, whoever he was, they didn't really understand who Jesus was, starting some sort of uproar that was going to lead to Rome really clamping down on them, or even destroying them. Peter, as I said, bolstered by the falling over, sets about them one by one. But Jesus diffuses the tension. And you see, Jesus had already fought the real battle that night. 
And that was the battle when he'd been on his knees with great drops of blood. That's where the battle had been that evening. At this point, the battle is over. You know, and he has to, there's no need to fight anymore at this stage. Jesus was still being obedient to the Father's will. Lessons for today from this. Very important, I think. See, we're not fighting for a political kingdom. How important? Because so much of the church, the purpose-driven movement and all these things, are working towards a kind of political end. You know, we've got to work for world peace. We've got to fight against the hunger issues and this issue and that issue. That's what so many in the church are doing. They're fighting for a political kingdom, just like Peter was trying to do here. You see, we will not build the kingdom now. Fighting social battles will cause those around us to lose their ears. Pun intended. Just as it was in that situation, if we try and get into these political things and um, social uh, causes, humanitarian things, we're going to cause those around us to lose their hearing. They will become dull to the gospel, which is what we should be preaching. You see, true freedom is actually going to be declared at the cross. Not at this point. Not in the garden. You see, we must not prevent the cross by trying to resolve the issues before people get there. And that's what Peter was trying to achieve. We carry on. It says, verse 12, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now this is interesting because Annas had been high priest from around about 6 to 15 AD, but had been deposed by Pilate's predecessor. And uh, he, but as a result of this, he still remained very influential uh, in the situation. He was uh, the vice president of the Sanhedrin. And actually, his family had the office of high priest for 56 years continuously, including his son-in-law, Caiaphas. According to the Torah, the high priest was to stay in office until he died. But the Romans didn't like that idea, and they would replace the high priest as when they wanted to do so. So we have Annas, who is the, if you like, Jewish high priest. He's the one that they recognize. But Caiaphas was the high priest who had been appointed by Rome. So this is why we have this kind of dual issue here as to which one is the high priest. Well, both were. That we have um, Caiaphas, sorry, Annas was the, the Jewish high priest, as I say. Caiaphas, the Roman appointee. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without, then went out that other disciple which was known unto the high priest and spake unto her that kept the door and brought Peter in. Now, most commentators understand this to be John. John had some kind of relationship. He knew the high priest and was able to get himself in and therefore gets Peter brought in as well. There's no conclusive evidence to support that. Some suggest it could be Nicodemus, who had become a disciple uh, by this time, or even Joseph of Arimathea. So I just share that with you for whatever it's worth. Uh, I think it's probably most likely to be John. One of the reasons is that John never mentions himself by name. So the fact that we're not given the name of this other disciple would uh, seem to be consistent with the Gospel of John, where John never actually mentions himself. But anyway, verse 17. Then said the damsel that kept the door unto Peter... Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? And he said, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. I think this is really interesting, because what we find is there, Peter stood with them. When we try and stand with the world, 
it will inevitably bring compromise. We can't stand with the world and with Christ. You can only do one or the other. And Peter here is wanting to stand with the world. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. It's interesting that he's asking about Jesus' doctrine. I think we can understand that, that the high priest is saying, what is your political manifesto? Again, understand their mindset. They're expecting Jesus to, to try and usurp Rome. And he's saying, tell me about your disciples and what's your plan? What is it you're trying to do? Jesus says, look, I've been teaching openly. Ask those that have heard me. You know, I've said nothing in secret. Verse 22, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Obviously this person quite cross that Jesus responded in such a way. But Jesus, as he does, with a simple question, just pulls the rug out of the confidence that we so often build for ourselves and stand on. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why did you hit me? Why smitest thou me? You know, the high priest asks a pretty stupid question in the light of it. If you'd only thought, actually, there's lots of people that could testify what Jesus' manifesto was. This person that, that strikes Jesus, why did he hit Jesus? Was it that Jesus did something that was wrong? Not at all. You see, we often, people often put up these, these arguments, and actually they're, they're, they're very shallow arguments. And Jesus, throughout the Gospels, just pulls the rug out of our own self-confidence by a simple question. Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest, and Simon stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art thou not also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, bad news for Peter that this character happens to be standing next to him, said, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? And you can imagine the conversation that ensues at this point. But Peter, we're told by John, then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. How must Peter have felt? We're told in one of the other Gospels that at that point Jesus looks at Peter. I can't even begin to imagine what that's like, except for the fact that I've been there and you've been there. You know, we've been in those situations where we've actually done something that we know was not glorifying to God. We've denied the Lord in our circumstances, situations, in a conversation, whatever else. And you feel that gaze of the Lord. All of us have been to that situation. And we're so quick to look at Peter and think, shouldn't have done that. But we've all done it. And the truth is, we probably all will go on and do it again. Some of the lessons here. Peter tried to take on these 600 plus soldiers. But now he's intimidated by a girl. This little servant girl asking the question. This is where that starts. The questioning starts. You see, in our flesh dwells no good thing. We think we may be strong. We're able to cope, whatever. But as Paul says in Romans 7, you know, to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I don't find. In your natural selves, you will not find the ability to stand for Christ when it matters. You see, this is really the whole issue of this transformation. Because in Philippians 4.13, Paul tells us there, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Peter struggles just to stand up for, for this person that only a, a, an hour or so possibly before He'd be prepared to fight to the death for. And now, standing around a fire, he's intimidated. It's interesting if you compare this passage, John 18, 27, with Acts 4, 
6 through 14, look at it at your leisure. But you'll find there Peter standing up to the Sanhedrin, to these people, to Annas, to Caiaphas, boldly. And they're amazed with the boldness with which Peter and John speak. The difference with that transformation. Christ in us. Incredible. What a difference it makes. You know, there's six illegal trials that we find Jesus has to endure. There's uh, three Jewish ones before Annas, before Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin. And there's another three that Rome um, inflicted upon him before Pilate, before Herod, and then another one before Pilate again. Six times Jesus has to endure these trials. Verse 28 then says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. It was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. I think this could be one of the greatest ironies in history. They want to celebrate the Passover. What was the Passover all about? Well, it was about the blood of a lamb, a spotless lamb, whose blood was shed to purchase their freedom. And here they are with the Lamb of God standing in their midst. And they want to celebrate the Passover as they effectively are sending Jesus to his death. Incredible. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? Remember, the pilot's in his position that he's been told that we've got a political insurrection on our hands. We've got to do something about it. We've got to send out your, your, your armies and capture this man. He's dangerous. And they bring back one guy. And then they bring this one person to Jesus, to Pilate. And Pilate's saying, well, okay, what's he done? What is your accusation? And they answered and said unto him, if he were not a male factor, male factor uh, we would not have delivered him up to thee. Yeah, so just answer the question. That's not answering the question. That's just them saying, uh, well, uh, if he hadn't done something wrong, we wouldn't have brought him. Okay, so what's he done wrong? Well, they don't answer. Then Pilate said unto them, take you him uh, and judge him according to your law. Pilate sees that this is some religious thing. He's not bothered. There's no political threat. The Jews therefore said unto him, is it not lawful? Uh, sorry, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Oh, oh, oh. This is before a trial. Or at least before any Roman trial. Yes, the Jews have had their, their three mock trials, if you like. But they're saying, we can't put a man to death. Well, he's not even been tried yet, let alone found worthy of death. And Jesus says, or John records, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying what death he should die. And again, it has to be the Romans that do this because it has to be by crucifixion, hence John's remark. And what we're seeing here is is what we refer to nowadays as a kangaroo court. The sentence had already been passed. One um, uh, encyclopedia had this uh, to say. It says, a kangaroo court refers to a sham legal proceeding or court that denied due process rights in the name of expediency. (laughs) Isn't that the case here? Such rights include the right to summon witnesses... Uh, the right of cross-examination, the right not to incriminate oneself, which is what they have ended up committing Jesus on, the right not to be tried on secret evidence, the right to control one's own defence, the right to exclude evidence that is improperly obtained, irrelevant or inherently inadmissible, e.g. hearsay, the right to exclude judges or jurors on the grounds of partiality or conflict of interest, and the right of appeal. The outcome of a trial by kangaroo court is essentially determined in advance, usually for the purpose of providing a conviction either by going through the motions of manipulating procedure or by allowing no defence at all. Well, that so summarises this whole situation. Verse 59 uh, of Matthew 26 tells us, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. <laughs> yeah, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. 
said Jesus endured three Jewish, three Roman trials, it was interesting that it was illegal for them to carry weapons on a feast day. They themselves were breaking the law by going after Jesus on the feast day, which is the 14th, it was Passover. It was illegal to bind the accused before condemnation, but we're told that they do that. It was illegal for the judges to participate in the arrest of the accused, and yet they do that. No trial could be conducted at night, and they do that. And no verdict other than acquittal could be pronounced the same day, and yet they're trying to do so. The high priest was also not allowed to rent his robes, and he does so. That's just a, a snapshot. There are so many laws that the Jews broke in order to force this situation through. Pilate then entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? Now evidently at this point the the Jews must have said what the the crime was. They've tried to find something and they've said, that well, he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. Pilate comes back and says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, What's your opinion? Effectively. Did you hear it from others, or is that what you're thinking? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thy own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. That must have shaken Pilate for a little. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. I like J. Vernon McGee's comment. He says, Pilate is out on a limb and wants to get off. He would like to help Jesus. He's inside the court alone with Jesus. The Jews are waiting outside because of their scruples about contaminating themselves. Pilate would be happy if Jesus would simply say that he's not a king, and that would get Pilate off the hook. Who is on trial, Pilate or Jesus? I think it's quite an insightful comment. Pilate said unto him, what is truth? We could spend the whole evening on that, but uh, we shall move on. Uh, Chuck Misler does a very interesting study on that, uh, that very title, What is Truth? Uh, looking at the basis for what we believe, the, the reason we believe what we do, what really is truth. How do we know that anything is true? Uh, very interesting if you want to uh, check that out. Pilate says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all, but you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Now Pilate's thinking, this is great. I can get myself out of this now. We've got a custom. Okay, they're saying he's guilty, but we can get him released under this custom. They cried, uh, sorry, then cried they all saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. I don't think Pilate was expecting that for one moment. But Barabbas is a very interesting character. Name means son of the father, Bar, Abbas. Abbas, we have Abba, father here, and Bar means son of, son of the father. And this speaks of all of us because we were all sons of our father, the devil, but have now been adopted and we're now called the sons of God. Barabbas was guilty. Christ was innocent. This is this great exchange. We were singing earlier, and this just, just struck me as we were singing. You know, the, the guilty ones go free when the one who is innocent is led away. Incredible. So let's move into chapter 19. And we find there that Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. 
Again, I think Pilate's doing this because he's thinking, well, if I punish him, maybe, then we can release him and it's all over. The soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Those characters will one day stand before this person. This, they will look upon the face of this one they struck. Incredible. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Pilate doesn't have any reason to convict this man. He wants to set him free. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. You know, it's almost as Pilate saying, is this what you wanted? Look at the state of him. You know, are you happy now? And I think Pilate was kind of banging here on a little bit of compassion, that they would look at the mess that Jesus was in after this discouraging, which was actually enough in some cases to kill people. And they're hoping that the, Jews, the Jewish leaders will look upon Jesus now and say, okay, enough. But when the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Take you him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. His Pilate saying, how can you, why? It just doesn't make any sense. I don't find any fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now this is information that Pilate hadn't had before. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Just who is it he's dealing with? And went again into the judgment hall and said unto Jesus, whence art thou? You know, who are you? When Jesus gave him no answer, then said Pilate unto him, Speak thou not unto me, knowest that I have the power to crucify thee and the power to release thee. Jesus answered, Thou could have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee has the greatest sin. We find um, Paul comments on that in uh, Romans 13, where he just basically says that all the governments are ordained by God. Those that are in power are there because God has placed them there. This is what Jesus is saying to Pilate. You know, you're, you're in the position you're in because God has put you there. Probably made Pilate feel very, very small. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. They had no love for Caesar. They didn't care anything about Caesar. But it suited their purposes for this. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, a bit of a pickle now really, um, he brought forth Jesus and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. About this time we also find Matthew in twenty-seven nineteen records, uh, when he was sat down on the judgment seat, his wife said unto him, have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Now everything up until this point was really telling Pilate, I ought to release him, I ought to release him. There's nothing wrong with him. You know, he's seeing all this stuff and now his wife is on his case as well. But Pilate's too weak to do it. He could, he could have just turned around and said it. But of course, Pilate is just playing the part here. This all has to happen the way God has decreed it. But it was because Pilate's weakness that he, he could have let Jesus go. But verse 14 we read, and it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? Still Pilate's asking this question. The chief chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Yeah, right. The preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. um, 
the sixth hour being about midday. This is just a schematic looking at this whole week. We have uh, the triumphal entry here on Sunday the 10th. The following day is when the fig tree is cursed. Then go on. The Jewish day begins in the evening. And uh, the next day is when they come back and they see that the fig tree is all withered. Uh, obviously very interesting in itself. And what we find here uh, is that this is the, the day when Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse. Now that's particularly interesting. Jesus gives this Olivet Discourse effectively 24 hours or so before he's, he's taken. Um, and I think it's very interesting because a lot of people today will talk about prophecy as being something we need not be concerned about. One particular book that supposedly has a purpose, I obviously won't mention it, makes the comment that when the disciples asked Jesus about it, the events surrounding his second coming and return, uh, Jesus quickly switched the conversation. That's what this book says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible details Matthew 24, 25 uh, and lots of other places how important the, the situation regarding what we refer to as the end times really is. We neglect prophecy at our peril. If you've got any doubt about that, look at the nation of Israel. We then get to this point here is the, 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 we get into this evening on the, what would be the, the Tuesday evening um, as the, the 13th would begin for the Jews. Uh, that's the occasion when Jesus sits down for this meal in Bethany and uh, Mary pours this expensive ointment on his feet and uh, washes uh, his feet with her hair and things. Judas is so outraged by this that that's all he needed to tip him over the edge and send him out. But look how close it was. It was only the next evening that he then goes out, gets the Jews and comes back. This wasn't a calculated, planned thing from Judas's point of view. It was just the night before. Now, again, we've commented, I don't believe Judas was saved for a moment. Jesus uh, makes it very clear that, you know, he says, one of you is a devil. That's a kind of a hint. But Judas, wherever he was at, I don't think it got to the point of planning this. It was very much an impulse thing. Luke 22, verse 7 to 16, talks about, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. Now, just to go back to, to this chart here, uh, as we're going to get on to here, this, this becomes then, uh, when we get on to the 14th in the evening, the day, the first day of the seven days they were to eat unleavened bread. And uh, that's what Luke is telling us. The day of unleavened bread, not the feast of unleavened bread, don't get those confused, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. Now, this is important because there are some people that will try and tell you that Jesus didn't actually eat the Passover. And because of this, they get the details this week all, all messed up. But Jesus clearly intended to eat the Passover. And they said unto him, Where will thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in, and you shall say unto the good man of the house, The master says unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, again, I've just shown you that to underline that very clearly Jesus did eat the Passover with his disciples on the first day of unleavened bread, which was the 14th of the month. In Luke 22, 7 through 16, verse 12, we pick up. It says, And he shall show you a large upper room furnished, there make ready. And they went and found, as he had said unto them, and there made ready the Passover. Okay, so we're now on to this day. This is the first day of unleavened bread, because by the time they get to the evening, that's when this feast will begin. The feast that lasts effectively uh, seven days. The first day becomes the feast of Passover. It's the 14th of the month. Exodus 12 gives you the details on that. Uh, also Exodus 23 and, uh, and Leviticus 23 as well detail the feast for us. 
So we then get to the evening here, as it, kind of the clock ticks over, the new Jewish day begins, uh, and then we read in uh, Luke 22, verse 14, And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then we find that after the Passover, we've seen what we've looked through this evening already. They come out, they go down to Gethsemane, and eventually Jesus is then uh, arrested. He's taken through this night. He endures these trials, going through this day. And then we get to midday, the, uh, the sixth hour. Again, the, the day, the timing would start from 6 a.m. and count forward from there. And then we get to, to this point on the Thursday, which is obviously the day of the crucifixion. Without going into too many details, it's very simple to work out. We know that Jesus rose on the third day. You just simply have to pop back. If uh, the third day we know was the Sunday, because it's very clear it was the first day of the week, you plot back, you've got the third day, second day, first day. The, event, the day the crucifixion had to take place was Thursday. You don't need to be a mathematical genius to work that out. And it's the only day that all these details fit together. We carry on. And in John 19, back into our study, verse 16, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. This is Pilate. So Pilate gives in, he caves in. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place uh, place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Now that is the place that is Golgotha. People make a, a big thing about the fact that you seem to have this kind of skull-shaped uh, arrangement in the rock. Possibly significant, maybe not, for reasons I'll share in a moment. But... There's, I think, very little doubt that that is the spot. If you look at a, a map of the, this is the... Jerusalem itself is part of a big mountain range that goes up. The peak of it is the same place that Abraham offered up Isaac, or would have offered up Isaac. Exactly the same place that we call Golgotha. Uh, very interesting. The, the threshing floor where the temple uh, was eventually built, uh, it was purchased by David, you remember, uh, is at this point here. Uh, if we look there, just zooming in a little bit, again we have the Temple Mount there and Golgotha up the top here. And again, it was on that point 2,000 years before this that another father had effectively gone to offer up his son. And when Isaac says, you know, we've got the wood, we've got everything else, but where is, is the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. Not provide a lamb for himself, but he'll provide himself as the lamb. And when John sees Jesus, we saw in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the first thing John says is, Behold the Lamb. That's the answer to the question. Because if you remember, it's not a lamb that eventually is offered up. It's a ram that's caught in the thicket. Eventually, a lamb is found, and that's Jesus himself. Now that's, that's again looking at this, this map, uh, looking at the contours. It was superimposed, just so you can see those two. Exactly the same place we've got the Temple Mount here, and then this point up here, which is Golgotha. Just again, just so you can see, fits absolutely perfectly. Uh, that is the place. And you can see here also, it's, it, on some maps, it's actually marked there as Christ's tomb, uh, Calvary, all in the same area. We'll see a bit more of that in a moment. But interestingly, this is the, the Temple area. This was the Praetorium. This is where the, the Antonia Fortress was just sitting, looking down onto where the temple itself was, slightly higher, slightly raised area. Now, the walls of the city in this time were kind of going around this area, 
All right. Some will argue that actually the perimeter of the city was this point. You can actually see even today, there's a road, there's a main road that comes around here. Um, but this is kind of, even today, a kind of a perimeter line. Well, what that tells you either way is that where Jesus was crucified was outside the city. And that's important because when we go to Leviticus, we're told there, the skin of the bullock and his flesh, with his head and with his legs, with his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burnt. What we find here is this sacrifice that's being detailed, uh, this sin offering carried forth without the camp as Jesus was. And notice, burn him on the wood. All those offerings we find back in Leviticus all picture that which Christ accomplished for us. And the writer to Hebrews makes this comment. He says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest uh, for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. You see, you've seen the pictures, you see how it works. But Jesus fulfilling all these types of models, so many. Now interestingly, just a slight detour here for a second. Back in Genesis, you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure, but the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, causing Eve to, to stumble, to fall, and obviously the whole thing that led to the fall, it says, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shall thou go, and the dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, so these two results that are, come, are going to come from this. We've got effectively the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We're told that thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. So the seed of the woman is to bruise the head of the serpent. But the serpent, or the seed of the serpent, will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. We find a very interesting picture of this in the story of David and Goliath. It's one of the classic good versus bad models in scripture. Goliath being a type of Satan, he was the best, the biggest of the enemy, defying the living God of Israel. How did Goliath die? A stone pierced his head. And we find throughout scripture that a stone is, is an idiom of Jesus all the way through. The stone the builders rejected. So often we find that idea, that picture used. What happened to the head of Goliath? Kind of a question you're thinking, well, I'm not really sure. A few people have been their hands up, I know. Well, we're told in 1 Samuel, one of the most bizarre verses in the Bible, 1 Samuel seventeen fifty four, and David took the head of the Philistine, you remember after he killed him, he chopped it off, and brought it to Jerusalem, put his armour in his tent. Now any well-adjusted person would just read over that and not think too much of it. But the interesting thing is, at that time, Jerusalem, or Jabus as it, or Jebus, as it was called then, was under the Jebusites. It didn't belong to Israel. It wasn't in Israel's territory at that point. It's not until later they captured Jerusalem. So David is taking the head of this giant into enemy territory for what purpose? Why? Well, obviously he's placing it there and you can be pretty, pretty sure that he was going to bury it somewhere. That was the only logical reason for putting it anywhere or doing anything with it. He wasn't just going to put it on a pole. Obviously the birds would have picked it or whatever else. So for some reason David is taking this head to this place. Now I believe... It was a spirit-inspired decision and move because brought it to Jerusalem, back to John 19, verse 17, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull. Whose skull? 
which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. We have a contraction there, Goliath of Garth. That's who Goliath was. And I believe that's why this place was so named. This was the place where Goliath's head had been buried. Now that's interesting, but why? In Joshua 10.24, we just read there, it came to pass that when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, this after a, a victory and everything else, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which were with him, come near, you put your feet upon the necks of these kings, and they came near and put their feet upon the necks. This was a symbol that they had got victory over their enemy. They would put their feet on the heads of the enemy as a sign of their victory. Again, that verse back in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You see, the serpent was to indeed bruise the heel of the seed. But the seed was to bruise the head of the serpent. In an eternal declaration of Christ's victory, his bruised feet, pierced feet, are upon the head of the enemy. Right over the place where Goliath's head was buried, Jesus stands there declaring this eternal victory. Forty or so authors over a couple of thousand years, 66 books. It is one integrated package. It is just so incredible how all these details tie together. Where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a tittle and put it on the cross. Uh, The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh unto the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Caved in on everything else, but Pilate was adamant that this was not going to be changed. Why? Well, because when you look at it in the Hebrew, okay, we told it three languages, but in Hebrew we have just four words, Yeshua, Hatnatsarai, Vermelka, Hatyahudim. That's probably not correctly pronounced, but that's the idea. But what's really interesting is when you look at those first four letters of those four words, it's the unpronounceable name of God, what we refer to as Yahweh or Jehovah, emblazoned on this cross. That's why the Jews didn't like it. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven uh, from the top throughout. They said therefore unto them among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, uh, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Obviously John adding this in, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Interesting that they had to fulfill scripture. They had no idea they were fulfilling scripture, but the scripture that might be fulfilled we find in Psalm 22. Again, this is incredible. David's writing this some thousand years before the event. Crucifixion has not even been invented at this time. But David writes there prophetically, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potshed. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou has brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. And the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I tell all my bones. Not one of them is broken. We'll see that mentioned in a moment. 
They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now you tell me how David could write that so accurately a thousand years before. And again, we have the Septuagint version of Scripture somewhere around about 300 years before this, translated into Greek. So, you know, there's very little doubt that this is indeed prophetic. You can't find another explanation of this. Again, one integrated package. Now they stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, again John referring to himself, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Again, scripture we just looked at. Now there was a set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. To Telestai. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That's just one of the most amazing declarations, probably the most in all of uh, history and time. To uh, Colossians chapter 2 just says, You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was, that was against you. That's referring to the law, the law that was going to condemn us, written down, all this law. It's blotted it out, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. When a a Roman prisoner was guilty of a crime. The list of their crime would be nailed on their prison door. When they paid their sentence, it would be right, written across to Telestai, paid in full. And they could then take that with them. And if anybody said, oh, aren't you a criminal? No, 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 it's paid in full. That's what's happened for us. Jesus has taken the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, has it nailed to the tree, and he cries out on the cross to Telestai, paid in full. The whole lot paid. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, I'm just going on that in just a moment, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, and again, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that the legs might be broken and they might be taken away. That was to induce death, to speed up death, cause it, you would, as you were being crucified, apparently you'd try and push up with your feet to breathe by breaking the legs, effectively the person would suffocate. Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Again, just so the scripture can be fulfilled. Now, this day of preparation, it was the day of preparation. This is why they wanted to get Jesus off the cross. The preparation day being the day prior to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when no work was permitted. Now, although this was a feast day on the 14th, they were allowed to do certain work according to the Jewish law. And you read about that, uh, particularly uh, in uh, Leviticus 23, also uh, Exodus 12 makes that point. But we get to, to this day and no work was permitted at all because it was the high Sabbath. It was one of three specific Sabbath days when all Jewish males had to present themselves before the Lord in Jerusalem. So they have to get Jesus off the cross and into the grave before this day begins, as it were. Um, and this, that's why this is the preparation. That's why this is referred to as the high Sabbath or high day. But one of the soldiers, um, sorry, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. Again, very clear indication that he's dead. Joshua McDowell and others make a very compelling case um, showing how from a medical perspective there was no doubt and question that he died. Uh, others would even go to the, to the extent of saying that this indicates that his heart had ruptured, that effectively they'll argue that Jesus died of a broken heart. 
Now you can make something of that if you will. But verse 35 says, and, uh, He that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, um, that you might believe. John is saying that I saw this, I was there, I'm an eyewitness, and I'm telling you so that you can believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. Again, we looked at that. Uh, and also in um, uh, Exodus 12 it says this as well. Uh, and again, another scripture that says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Exodus twelve forty six. not a bone shall be broken. Uh, in fact, Exodus 12 is this incredible model. Zechariah 12, 9 is the other scripture mentioned there. Uh, just to look at that very quickly. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. They will realize, the Jews will realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And they will repent. And they will be restored. They will be grafted back in, as Paul tells us in Romans 12. But they'll realize that Jesus was the one who was put on the cross and pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, I don't believe there's any cowardice in that. I kind of talked about more of that in the notes. But uh, he says, but besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. Uh, he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. Now, we know that Joseph of Arimathea was a very wealthy man at that time, very, very respected. Obviously, clearly, we're told a disciple. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the, with the spices as the manner of Jesus to bury. To bury. Uh, interestingly, just throw in here, um, that does shed some, some doubt on the whole Turian shroud idea. Because they're wrapping him in cloths, okay, linen cloths. So the whole idea that we have one piece of cloth that has this imprint on it would seem to be a, a little in doubt from that particular verse. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden a new sepulchre uh, wherein was never man yet laid. As um, Chuck uh, Smith often points out, and I can't resist the, uh, the opportunity... As Joseph is going to, Joseph of Arimathea going to Pilate saying, I would like the body of Jesus. And Pilate says, you know, why on earth do you want this body? You know, this person that the Jews want dead and, you know, why do you want his body? You know, and he says, well, I'm going to put him in my tomb. And Pilate says, now hang on, you've got this tomb that you've had dug out for you and your family and you want to put this person inside it? He says, why? He said, oh, it's just the weekend. That is the, the garden tomb. Again, there were people that will question it, but this is right by the side of, um, of Golgotha that we looked at earlier. Um, just moving along. This is the same wall, if, if you like. Obviously, this wall has been built a little bit more recently, but this rock face is exactly the same. You move along this way, and about, in comparison, round about here, you'd have Golgotha itself, as we looked earlier. There is the, the tomb. You go in there, and uh, I've had the privilege and opportunity to go in there, and just as it says on the door, he's not here for his risen. There led they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews, uh, Jews' preparation day for the sepulchre was night hand. Just so we looked at that a second ago. But it's clearly they didn't have opportunity to embalm him properly. So the first opportunity the women could get, they want to come back to the tomb. Now, as if some say the crucifixion was on the Wednesday, that would have, have been Passover. The next day would have been Feast of Unleavened Bread. It means that on the Friday they could have gone to the tomb. The fact that they don't go until the first day of the week, again, is another very clear indicator that this timing uh, is right, that Jesus did indeed die on the Thursday, and then when he's in the, the, the grave Thursday night, uh, Friday, Friday night, 
Saturday, Saturday night, and then rises on, rises on the third day, exactly as the scriptures say. So that does bring us to the end of this chapter. We'll uh, deal with the, the remainder uh, next time as we have a final session. But just to conclude with uh, some interesting remark that Pilate makes, uh, Matthew records for us. He says, now the next day that followed, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread itself, the day um, that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together under Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that this deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have your watch. Go away. In other words, okay, you can have your your people. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. Just wonder what Pilate actually meant by that remark. And next time we have the wonderful conclusion that we realised that actually they couldn't make it very secure because there was nothing that was going to stop Jesus rising from the dead.